At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. Right, this morning, if you have a Bible or electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. Super excited about uh, this series this morning as we get a chance to dive into uh, this challenging series, which I'm super excited about. And know that um, there are each one of these um, sermons, each one of these chapters that we're going to be walking through, the first six chapters of Daniel, uh, we could talk about them for days and days and days, and we're not going to, um, but that's why we have our life groups and our Bible studies that will be going along with us. We do have um, those uh, Daniel Bible study books that are available. Uh, if you're a part of a life group, I believe all of our life groups will be going through that, so you'll be studying uh, Daniel there as well. And so my life group meets tonight. Um, other of our life groups meet throughout the rest of the week, and so if you want to, this would be a good time if you haven't been part of a life group to dive in because we're starting a new study. Um, there is a sign-up sheet out in the lobby for uh, life groups that are open, so if you're interested in that, um, there's information out there about that. But as we dive in this morning, have you ever been at a, a place in your life where you visited a different country? Or maybe you lived abroad. Has that ever been a part of your experience? I know for me, when you, the times that I've gone abroad, it always feels awkward. It always feels weird because there's different customs, there's different traditions. And sometimes you, you go and you enter in and you feel like an outsider. Like you know that there's a distinct difference between who you are and the people that surround you. Usually we live in a pretty homogeneous uh, community where people look like us, they talk like us, they like the same things as us. But when you go abroad or you go into a different culture, it can be shocking culturally. And I'll never forget the time that probably the most awkward that I've ever felt or the most hostile I ever felt going into a different culture was a few years ago, had an opportunity to go to Burkina Faso, which is in uh, sub-Saharan West Africa. And we were in the capital, uh, the capital city called Ouagadougou. And while we're in the capital city, it was our first day there. We hit the ground on the plane. We go to the market to get some food. And I'll never forget, it was about midday. And we're busy about gathering our, our stuff in the open market. And then all of a sudden, this call to prayer comes over the loudspeakers that was being blasted from the mosques in the area. Now, if you know anything about uh, Burkina Faso and you know that part about the world, Islam is the predominant religion. And it was shocking to me to see that as soon as that call to prayer goes off, all of the shop workers and everyone, they drop what they were doing. They move to the center of the marketplace and they begin to lay out their mats and they begin to bow and they, they pray and they kneel and they pray and they do all this. And they're calling out to their God. And in that moment, I felt like an outsider. I felt eerily in a place of hostility. 
like as though there was this spiritual battle that was going on because these people were doing this, some of the, the same things that I do. I pray. I'm a person that prays. I pray to God and I ask him to intercede in my life. I ask him to do good things. And we see that these people were approaching their God. And the amazing thing was they were praying, so we were doing kind of the similar things, but they were praying to a different God. They weren't, we don't pray to the same God. The, the God that we worship this morning is not the God that they worship. And in an instant, I felt the hostility. I felt the awkwardness. I felt, man, I'm in a foreign place. I'm in a place where not everyone is, thinks like me, not everyone worships like me, and I felt like an outsider. Well, this morning, as we dive in and we begin our study in Daniel what we're going to see is that Daniel finds himself in a very similar situation. Daniel finds himself in a very hostile culture that wants nothing, wants nothing of his God, but instead wants to assimilate Daniel into this hostile culture. And what we're going to see over the next few weeks is how is it that we can remain loyal to God's kingdom in the midst of a hostile culture. That's my prayer. As we walk through the book of Daniel, my, my prayer is that we see God and his sovereignty more, but we also see how we, in the midst of God's greater plan, can live a loyal life to the kingdom of God. Now, if you know much about the, uh, the, the historical background, the actual historical background about the, the book of Daniel, you can open up history books and you can find, even though it's not biblical, we can find that what Daniel is talking about actually happened in real history. This is not a fable. This is not a tale. This is not a, a story that was passed down from years to years. This is an actual biblical or worldly historical account that the Bible identifies. And so when we step into the world of Daniel, we find ourselves in a foreign land. We find ourselves in a place where the government is powerful, the government is pagan, the government is progressive, and the government itself is persuasive. As the nation of Babylon goes about overthrowing other kingdoms, what it does is it tries to assimilate its people into Babylonians. And that's what we see happening here as well. And Babylon, the nation of Babylon, comes on the scene and we see that even in the midst of the greater narrative of scriptures, God is unfolding his plan of redemption. We see Babylon showing up over and over and over again. And Babylon itself, as its prominent role throughout scripture, is always seen as the embodiment of immorality. Right? We can go to Revelation. Right, go all the way back, we'll go to Revelation chapter 18, and we see that Babylon shows up in the end. That Babylon was a dwelling place for demons. So it's in Revelation, but we also go back to Genesis, and we see that Babylon shows up in Genesis chapter 11 as the Babylonians, or the Babylon at the time, the people of Shinar, come together to build themselves a city and a tower that its, that its tops will go to heaven, and they make a tower unto themselves. Remember the Tower of Babel? That takes place in Shinar, which we'll see in our text today. So from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, we see Babylon showing up as the symbol of this embodiment of immorality. And now the nation 
of Babylon rages. In its height, it was one of the greatest um, political and army um, nation that we've seen in existence to its time. And now we see this land that's known for its excess and sin and violence. We see God's people showing up and having to live in this land. And how is it possible that they can remain loyal? How is it that they can remain faithful? And that's what we're going to see here. And throughout this series, I want you to see that there are going to be two truths or two themes that keep showing back up over and over and over again. This first truth that shows up over and over and over again in the book of Daniel is that in spite of present difficulties, God is in control and he will have the final victory. In spite of difficulties. So even in your life right now, in spite of your difficulties, despite of whatever you're going through, God is in control and he will have ultimate victory. The second truth and second theme we see showing up over and over and over again is that God's people can survive and thrive in the midst of a hostile culture. God's people can survive and thrive in the midst of a hostile culture. And so today, our big idea that we're going to see, our big theme in the passage today, is that God is sovereign over our cultural circumstances. God is sovereign over our cultural circumstances. There are so many lessons that we can learn from the book of Daniel on God's sovereignty and his faithfulness to his people. But today, I want us to look at just three ways in which we can begin to remain faithful to God in the midst of a hostile culture. The first thing that we need to do is begin by recognizing the cultural influences. Recognize the cultural influences. Look at me in Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chiefs of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, there's a... A lot going on in in this passage. The historical background of what's taking place up into this moment. But we see that as Daniel begins, as history is unfolding, it comes to the place of one of the most devastating moments in the nation of Israel's history. The Babylonians who are the arch enemy of Jerusalem and the people of God, King Nebuchadnezzar comes and besieges the people of Judah and he destroys Jerusalem and raises the temple. This is an amazing time in which we see that 
this great battle is taking place in the spiritual realms against this earthly king, against the God of the universe. And what we see here is that God, because he is a God that has told his people over and over and over again, faithfully worship me, worship me alone. And we see the people of God continually going against God, that God raises up the nation of Babylon to bring his justice to his own people, to bring his discipline to his own people. And let us not forget that as we see the writer of Daniel giving us this indication that it's God's hand at work. It was God doing this. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. So it's not as though King Nebuchadnezzar is doing this apart from himself in his own power and in his own strength and ability. It's the sovereign hand of God that is allowing this to take place. Let us be reminded that nations and leaders and cultures and kingdoms rise and fall every single day. And it is the God's hand that is involved in all of them. God is in control and God is allowing this to take place. Historically, what would take place at this time is once a nation would overthrow another nation, they would go into their temple and they would take their gods or they would take the idols of their gods. And then what they would do is they would take them back to their temple, their place where they worship their gods, and they would put the, the defeated armies, the defeated nations, idols on display as a way of saying, hey, we are more powerful than your God and now your God has joined our side. That's what they would do. But it's interesting here that when they come to overthrow Judah and they go to Jerusalem in the temple, they, there's no idol there to take. Right? It doesn't say that. There's no idol. There's no image of the, the, the Israelite God in that temple. Instead, they have to take the holy things. And we'll talk about that later when we get to chapter 5. But in essence, they take the holy things from the temple and King Nebuchadnezzar places it in his holy temple as a way of, in an earthly sense, saying, now your God is defeated and your God is on our side. And we know that's not the case. Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll see later on in this narrative that Nebuchadnezzar is, is fooled. Nebuchadnezzar is full of himself, and he's full of all kinds of evil, and he's full of all kinds of ways that displease the Lord. And we see over and over again in the Old Testament that God tells Israel, if they disobey him, if they pursue other gods, if they practice evil, he will rise up another nation to judge them. And that's exactly what Babylon is doing in this case. But if we know anything about the nation of Israel, we see that there's a pivoting point in Israel's history. If we, look, if we go back and we know anything about Israel's history, you know that it, it, at one time the 12 tribes were, divide, were, were united as one kingdom. But then slowly after Solomon and through Solomon, the nation divides into two kingdoms, another kingdom, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom takes 10 of the tribes and the southern kingdom takes two of the tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And if we know anything about them in the divided kingdom, what we see is the kings that led both of these kingdoms did evil in the sight of the Lord. And there were very, very few faithful kings along the way. But along the way, we see the northern kingdom begins to follow um, ancient gods and gods of other nations. And what God does is he rises up the Assyrians 
to besiege the northern kingdom and take them into captivity. This is like 157 years before what's taking place in Daniel right now. And what happens is that God shows his judgment on his own people. Ten of the tribes go to Assyria. Some of them stay there in the land. They intermarry And it's almost as though the ten tribes of Israel, ten of the tribes of Israel, have been assimilated by the Assyrians. Because no longer do we see them showing up in biblical history. We see them showing up later on. Now, God hasn't forgotten the ten tribes. They're not not the lost tribes, but they're in a place where they assimilate with the Assyrians. They marry Assyrians, and they have Assyrian children, and they take on Assyrian culture, and many of them, give up their identity as the children of God to become something else. Now we look at the place where now Judah and the tribe of Judah and Benjamin now have been taken over. And will they face the same fate? Will the people of God assimilate into this Babylonian culture or will they stand true? And we see that in this passage, Nebuchadnezzar does everything in his power to assimilate God's people into the Babylonian culture. Because that's the ultimate victory, right? If you can get a people that have a different God and a different culture to give up their God and give up their culture and begin to take on your culture and your God and your language and your practices, then you have absolutely defeated them. That there's no hope that this nation will ever rise again. So this is what's at the stake. This is what the cost is right here that we see might take place. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, if you want to take over a culture, what do you begin with? You begin with their nobles. You begin with their princes, and you begin with the best of the best. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He goes out and finds the the greatest young men, teens from the nation of Israel, those nobles. And so he comes along, and he gathers them together. And we see here he takes Daniel, and and several of Daniel's friends are some of these guys that he takes away. And in order to assimilate them, he begins to strip away their their lives socially, educationally, and religiously. If you want to destroy someone, take away their social structure, educate them in, in a new way with their own kind of propaganda, and then mess and and strip away their religious identity, their faith. And this is what was taking place. So what does he do? He gathers these young men of the nicest of the young men and he socially strips them away from their family. He makes also these men eunuchs. The reason it doesn't say that specifically, but he gives them, they're to be trained by the head of the eunuchs. And if you want to really demoralize someone, if you really want to cut them off, if you really want to take away their ability to have children, make them a eunuch. Right? If you want to wipe their name out of existence, Take the ability to have children away from them. And so socially, these young men were stripped away from their families. They were given no hope and given no future. Later, we see in verse 4 that they were told to be educated within the cultural influences of the day. They were to be trained and educated in all immorality and idolatry. They were trained to do evil in the sight of the Lord every single day for three years. This is how you defy God. This is how you live for your own self. This is how you gratify the cravings of your sinful nature. 
Every single day they were indoctrinated and trained in this with the whole idea that they would strip away their own educational identity of who they were, the truth that had been passed on to them from generation to generation. And now we see it doesn't, it gets even worse. In verse six and seven, we first identified these young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These names that were given to them from their parents that gave them identity into their faith Their names meant something, right? Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael means whose is what God's is. And Azariah means Yahweh has helped. Their names were identifiers of who they believed in and in whom they trusted. And now Nebuchadnezzar takes them into his kingdom and he strips all of that way by giving them names that reflect the worship of Babylonian gods. Daniel's name was Belteshazzar, which means Bel will protect. The god of Bel will protect. Hananiah, he's called Shadrach, which means Aku inspires me. Aku is another Babylonian god. Mishael is called Meshach, which means belongs to Aku. And Azariah is now called Abednego, which means servant of Nego. See, The goal of the Babylonians was to strip away these exiles of their social, educational, and religious convictions and replace them with the ethics and morals that were informed by these pagan gods. They wanted to strip everything away. See, we must, too, recognize the cultural influences of our day as well. You know, we live in a time where culture is confusing, where we live in a place where we need to understand that we live in a modern-day Babylon. Once we see that with our eyes, it makes things more clearly. Like, don't, don't, Pastor Jeff, we don't live in Babylon. Let me explain to you the, the Christian Babylon or the, the cultural Babylon that we live in today. Right? There was a, a time when our nation was known as a Christian nation. Remember that? America's a Christian nation. And what was happening in that is that to be Christian was to be an American. To be American was to be Christian. And what happened is is the the American identity and culture and the Christian identity were kind of melded together. Or they were syncretized together. In such a way to say is, is if I'm American, then I'm a Christian. And what happened in that is that we... We gave ourselves over and made compromises to our Christian faith, and our Christian faith bowed at many times to our American identity. And so you've got this easy believism in the Christian church, in the American uh, culture, where you're like, well, I'm a Christian because my mom was a Christian, and, and my mom's mom was a Christian, or my dad was a Christian, and my dad's mom was a, dad's dad was a Christian, so therefore I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian just by birth. And we can see how that causes some difficulties, right? You have those people that call themselves Christians but don't live according to the Bible. They live according to their American way, trying to live out their own idolatry, live out their own gratifications of their sinful nature, all in the name of Christianity. Now we, we still have that. That's infiltrated some of us where we have to understand where many people have assimilated to the American culture under the guise of being Christian. But then you've got this other group now. Now you go to the world and you're like, hey, what do you guys know about, uh, about America? 
America is no longer a Christian nation. It's a post-Christian nation. Meaning that the, the America has rejected God and is looking for answers in and of themselves. So now, to be Christian is to be hostile towards or to be intolerant of the things of this world. Right? If, you, if you proclaim Christ as, as a true believer, now you're intolerant, you're a bigot, you don't know truth because you follow some Jewish guy that died years ago. So now we live in this post-Christian nation where truth is gone, feelings reign. And so we live in a culture now that has two competing ideologies in our lives that are seeking to assimilate our souls to. It's pulling us apart. And we've got to understand that our, our culture wants to change you socially. They want you to feel like you have to be known and you have to be a part. You have to be liked by your culture. Do whatever it takes to be liked. Educationally, right? Our culture is teaching us this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to be right. This is, and it, all, all those things go against what the Bible says. And our world wants us to take on a faith that is counter-biblical. Our culture is hostile to the Christian faith. Culture wants to strip us away our social, educational, and religious convictions, and we need to be mindful of that. That's what we learned from Daniel. You can't live your life with blinders over your eyes. Nothing in this world is neutral. No TV show you watch is neutral. It always has an agenda. Anywhere you go to school is not neutral. It always has an agenda. Everything in the world has an agenda. You go to the, the, the grocery store, everything there has an agenda. It wants you to buy its product so that you can be happy. We must understand that nothing is neutral. Everything wants to take our hearts and our minds and our souls away from our good and glorious God. Everything. And this is why it's so important. We've got to have our eyes open to see that the world we live in is not docile. The world we live in is not a place that wants you to find peace and rest. The world we live in wants to destroy you. This is the backdrop of what we see Daniel feels and experiences. And what we must see too. Have eyes to see the culture that is around us. Second, what we need to do is remain dependent on God. Look with me in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should, you, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. 
Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them and in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh and all the youths who ate the king's food than all the youths that ate the king's food. And so the steward took away their food and the wine and they, they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Here what we see is Daniel and his buddies were unwilling to compromise their con- convictions in order to gain cultural acceptance. They were unwilling to compromise their convictions in order to gain cultural acceptance. This is a challenging lesson that each one of us are faced with every single day. Everyone, we all have this sense of, hey, I want to be liked I want to I be invited to the cool party. I want to be, be a part of that group that goes on vacation together. I want to be a part of that group that, that, that makes decisions at my business. I, I want to have a seat at the table. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to have a seat at the table. Even if it means compromising my convictions. But Daniel was unwilling. Daniel and his buddies, it says that they were resolved. Meaning that it's a deliberate act of their will, a deep-seated personal conviction. They, they understood who they were. They, first, they understood their deep identity. They knew that they were children of God, meaning that they had already been set apart. They were not of this world. Their identity did not rely on if people liked them. Their identity was found in being children of God, and they did not want to defile themselves by eating the king's food. You're like, what's the big deal? It's just the king's food. I, I don't know exactly what it was about the king's food. I don't know if it was the food that because they chose not to do it because the food that the king ate was uh, sacrificed to idols first. I, I don't know. But what I, what I really think is at stake here is that something about the food would defile them. And so they said, we're not going to eat that food or drink that wine because it will defile us. We, we know that food and drink, uh, there was a time later on in Daniel chapter 10 that Daniel actually shows that he does eat and he drinks wine. But something about that is different than this meat or it's something that's different than this food. And I think part of it is, has to still do with the whole assimilation of Daniel into the culture, because where did the food come from? It came from the king's table. Now follow me. Meaning that they were being asked to eat of the provisions of a king, so that at the end of the day, when they give prayers and thankfulness for the food that they're eating, who gets the praise? The king. Instead, Daniel says, no, I'm not going to eat of that. I'm not compromising my convictions. Me and my buddies, we're, sit, we're sitting this one out. Instead, give us vegetables. Where do vegetables come from? The hand of God. Right? Vegetables don't come from man. Vegetables come from the hand of God. Oh, man may plant the seed. Man may water the seed. But who makes it grow? God. And so they were making a statement 
to their, their buddies and to the other guys around them that we trust God, the God of the universe with our lives. Now, this was risky. This was super risky. They didn't know how it was going to turn out. They absolutely had no idea if it was going to turn out. But we see in the book of Daniel that Daniel and his buddies were not left alone, that God's hand shows up over and over and over and over and over and over again. God's hand is ever-present even in this situation. God is the one that softens the heart of this eunuch, this chief eunuch. God is the one that helps him understand that it's he who is in control and he who is at work. Now, why is it that God had given Israel special dietary laws? He, he clearly lays them out in Leviticus chapter 11. We don't have time to go through them, but clearly they weren't supposed to eat this and they weren't supposed to eat this and they weren't supposed to eat this way. And I think that it's twofold. One, I think God requires the strict diet for his people for his people were set apart. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses two and three, Moses tells this, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be his people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any detestable thing. Why is God doing this? Because through the way and how they chose to eat and what they refrained from eating showed whom they belonged to. Two, it was an outward expression of who their hearts belonged to, who their lives belonged to. So they chose not to eat detestable food. And in a very public way, showing who they belonged to. So verse 9 now shows us God's sovereignty again in Daniel's life. Who is Daniel to deny the king? For if you deny the king, you don't live. But yet Daniel... And the, the chief eunuch says, I, I fear the Lord my king. And God intervenes and preserves Daniel li Daniel's life. But it wasn't Daniel that did it, it was the Lord. Verses 11 through 16, we see Daniel negotiating with the steward by saying, giving him this, saying, hey, watch us for 10 days. Let, give us food, give us vegetables, give us water. Don't, we're not going to eat that meat. We're not going to eat that food. We're not going to eat any of that. But instead, watch us for 10 days. And, and if we're doing better at the end of it, then, then we're right. But if not, if, if not, after 10 days, if, if we're doing less, we'll give in and we will uh, follow your way. But their convictions cause them to hold true to what they believed and they were unwilling to compromise. You see, your life and my life as a follower of Christ should be marked by conviction, not compromise. Just as Daniel was called out to be different, you and I have been called out to be different. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, and I'm going to read it in the King James Version because I love the way it expresses this. He says, but you, meaning you followers of Christ, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love how First Peter captures this. We are a peculiar people. As followers of Christ, our lives look different. 
Your life should be distinguishable from those that don't know Christ. If your life doesn't look any different than your neighbor's life who doesn't know God, who, who's following a different God and doing it, if your life looks no different by the way that you spend your money and the way that you spend your time and the way that you give your life over to the resource, if your life looks no different, then I would be seriously concerned. Maybe your life is so full of compromises that you've forgotten the conviction that God has given. You are called to be holy. You know what that means? That means set apart. You are called to be holy and, and set apart and not defaming yourself with the things of this world. We're called to be holy. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. People that understand that we've been called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That means we know better. We have eyes to see the truth. We know the truth that we should live. I love how Daniel does this. Daniel negotiates for holiness. He steps in the face of danger, and instead of giving in to compromise, he negotiates for holiness. He says, I, I, I know this is a situation. I, I know this is what's before me. I know that this is what you're asking me to do. And I know that, you know, I, I want to follow. I want to obey because you put Nebuchadnezzar in authority over me. I want to, but I serve another God. I serve a greater God. And I'm willing to risk it. And he negotiates for holiness. How often do we do that? Instead, more than likely what you and I do is we negotiate for license. Right, we we live in our Christian freedom. We're like, you know what? It's okay. I, I I just hey God, if you just let me do this this one time, if you just let me let me bend the rules one time, it'll be okay. Just just one time, God. Instead, we we do that. We don't live by conviction, but we try to live in our license. I mean. Brothers and sisters, we must be resolved to follow Christ in every area of our lives, in our sexual purity. God clearly, clearly tells us how we're supposed to live. God clearly tells us that, that sex is designed to be shared between husband and wife in the relationship of marriage, a man and a woman. That's clear. You can't go around that. So we're like bending the rules and messing around before we're married. Like we're compromising. I'm not saying you're not a follower of Christ. I'm saying you're compromising in your convictions. If you're living a homosexual lifestyle, you're compromising your convictions. If you're uh, living with someone and you're not married, you're compromising your convictions. Not only in the area of sexual purity. I mean, we take a look at pornography. We can take a look at all of those things. You know that was the greatest damaging thing for the Christian faith today is Christians. We're called to be salt and light, and yet we're living lives of compromise. It's no wonder the Lord is bringing about difficulties in our lives because we're supposed to be his people to the nations, and yet we're sitting back compromising. Being resolved to maintain holiness means we refuse to cheat. We refuse to cut corners. 
We refuse to do whatever it takes to be, get ahead in business. Like we refuse to do those things. We stand for the sanctity of life. Now I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ and I struggle too. You get into those, some of those situations, they're high pressure situations. Like especially as a father, like I've got four kids I have to provide for. I have a wife that I have to protect and lead and all of these. There's so much pressure. There's so much pressure. And yet, it's so easy to compromise. And it's so difficult to say, God, in the midst of this, whatever this is, I'm going to trust you. That's a man of God. That's a woman of God that stands in the face of all of I don't care if everyone's doing it. I don't care if everyone in the world's doing it. The Christian says, I will not compromise. I will stand my ground. Are there areas in your life where you're compromising? If there are, and I tell you, this would be a great one, the first, the first Sunday of the year, like what a great way to begin by saying, Lord, your conviction's heavy on me. I realize I'm compromising in this area, in this area. Lord, forgive me. But third, if we hoped to be able to thrive in the midst of hostile culture, we need to receive his divine favor. Look with me in verse 17. It says, now as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had the opportunity, understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded them that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and encanters that were in all the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This has come to the climactic point of chapter 1. Daniel and his three other youths are brought before the king, Nebuchadnezzar. They're standing there with the final exam. After all the years of, of training and studying and constantly being indoctrinated with the idolatry and all the ways of Babylon, refusing to eat of the food of the king, we see what happens to these four guys. We see God's hands and God gave them God gave them, God gave them. What did God give them? God gave them three divine favors. First, God helped them, blessed them intellectually. They were able to understand, right? Instead of like being indoctrinated with the things of Babylon, the education that they were receiving, they were able to push that up and against what they knew about their own faith. And they were able to understand it in such a way that they could communicate to the, the king what the king needed to hear. The king wasn't asking for interpretation. He wasn't saying, is this your truth? He was just asking them questions about what they knew. And they knew those things, though they didn't believe it. Secondly, the Lord blessed them practically. Practically. They had wisdom and skill. They were able to see how all of this stuff fit together. Wisdom is applied knowledge. 
Right? They knew how it was supposed to work. So God blessed them intellectually, God blessed them practically, and God blessed them supernaturally. While they were able to understand visions and, and um, were able to see God's work in all the things that were going on. These four guys, it says that they were ten times better than everyone else. Now, I, I want to just say this real quickly. Daniel is a beautiful story of triumph. Daniel's, we're going to see over and over and over again, even next week, we're going to see that when we stand for what we believe and when we stand for our faith, we refuse to compromise. The Lord is with us but the lord doesn't always give us success hear this daniel's story is not always the case because the moral of the story the point that god wants to show us is that he is in it he is with it he is doing all things for his glory and our benefit and sometimes what benefits us is suffering and we're going to see this showing up over and over again. But today, you may be sitting here and you may be like, God, I've done everything. I've done everything you have ever asked me to do, and yet I'm still suffering. Yeah, well, God's still with you. God is with you. God is for you. God is acting. God is working. And he's bringing all things to his glory and for your good. And if it's not good, he's not done yet. He's still working. He's still working. So today, don't lose faith. Don't lose trust because you're suffering. Daniel's in the midst of suffering. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have, everything that he knew as a way of life is gone. And though we see the victories of it, we also don't see the suffering. God is at work Let's not be people of compromise, but let us walk in the gifts of grace. God has given us great grace. You and I, are the, as believers, we are recipients of God's great grace. What is God's great grace? Jesus. Right? Jesus came to a hostile culture. Jesus came from heaven to earth so that he could save us. And how did he do this? By living a perfect life, obeying the law, not giving in, never compromising. But then he goes to a cross. And we see Jesus is faced in the garden before going to the cross. He's faced in a situation of compromise. Right? He's tempted in that way. Where he goes to the Father and he says, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, I don't want to do this in his humanity. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to the cross. But what does he say? Though he felt that, he says, but Father, not my will, but your will. Father, not my will, but your will. May that be the resolve of our hearts today. Father, not my will, but your will. And Jesus went to a cross because he knew he needed to be the sacrifice for our sins. So that we could be made right with God, so our sins could be forgiven, and so that we could become children of God. This morning, we're going to end our time together sharing in the Lord's Supper. And I love the connection. I'm going to make this connection. I hope you see the beauty of this. 
For in this chapter, we see that Daniel and his buddies refused to eat from the king's table. But you and I, because of Christ now, we're invited to the king's table. We're invited to his table to what? To drink and to eat that which is good in the remembrance of who Jesus is. So this morning we come to the table. We come to the table not because of our own value or because of of what we've done or who we are. We come to the table because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Before we participate, I, I realize the Lord may be working in your heart. And the Bible does tell us that none of us should take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That means that if there's like bitterness in your heart, if there's resentment in your heart, if there's compromise in your life, before we take the supper, I want to give you just a few moments to confess to the Lord and ask him to allow your resolve for holiness to be restored. So I'm just going to give you a few moments just to pray by yourself, to do the work with the Lord, and then I'll close out our time. Father, we're thankful this morning that you are a God of invitation, that you say, come. Come in our sin, come in our shame, come in all of our compromise, come in all of our rebellion, come before you and lay it all down. For God, you've done the work in Christ to forgive us of all of our sins, to remove all of our sin, to remove all of our shame. Father, this morning we're reminded because it's because of your broken body and your spilled blood. And it's through our faith in that that we can call you Father. That there's no longer anything that divides us from you. There's no distance. There's no discord. There's just faith and trust. And God, as you are sovereign in the life of Daniel, you are still sovereign in each one of our lives. Your hand is at work. Father, help us to rest in that this morning. But now, Father, as we take this supper, help us to remember your sacrifice on our behalf. Help us to remember the cost of our sin, the cost of my sin that you did the work that I couldn't do because you love us so Lord as we take the supper now we do it to remember you in Jesus name Amen Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together we would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.